Rewrite Radio is delighted to share Dan Taylor's talk at the 1996 Festival of Faith and Writing. Taylor discusses the healing power of stories and the way stories can make us a different person. I'm Jennifer Holberg, co-director with Jane Zwart of the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing. Dan Taylor is the author of several books, including The Myth of Certainty, Letters to My Children, Tell Me a Story, The Life-Shaping Power of Our Stories, Creating a Spiritual Legacy, The Skeptical Believer, Telling Stories to Your Inner Atheist, and three novels. Taylor has also worked on a number of Bible translations, and he is co-founder of the Legacy Center, an organization devoted to helping individuals and organizations identify and preserve the values and stories that have shaped their life. So now, from the 1996 Festival of Faith and Writing, Daniel Taylor. This is Rewrite Radio. This is Rewrite Radio. This is Rewrite Radio. Thank you all for coming. It's what makes us more human because it connects us. Just look. Look at this world. A podcast from the Festival of Faith and Writing. I'm Daniel Taylor, and I'm going to introduce myself for this session. This is sort of an ad hoc session, as you know, because you only discovered this if someone told you about it or you saw it printed somewhere. So it... Uh, we did it yesterday, which actually yesterday was ad hoc too. They called a week ago and said, we've got all of these people coming and we don't have enough things happening. And have you ever said anything interesting in the last two or three years that you could say again? And I didn't, uh, without claiming to have ever said anything interesting, I said, well, I would do another session. And so we uh, added one yesterday and, and uh, they asked if we would do it again. That's the royal we, by the way. Does this go up? No. Well, I'll, I'll just hold it here. <laughs> Um, so I'm going to do uh, a session which we've entitled Living in Stories. Um, and this is something I've been thinking about the last two or three, four, five, six years, uh, which is the reason I agreed to talk about this as opposed to trying to uh, suddenly create something. It is uh, conveniently also the topic of a book that I've uh, just published with Doubleday and my editor Mark Fretz is here got a chance to meet him for the first time after endless email message and phone conversations and that's been a real plus about coming to the conference but I don't think uh, and the book is called the healing power of stories creating yourself through the stories of your life I don't however think it's particularly helpful to um, listen to an author summarize his or her book that you can either read or not read you know uh, based on your own discretion so I'm not here to uh, just sort of plod through a summary of, of my book what I do want to do is uh, present the basic thesis of the book and some kind of assertions perhaps that flow out of that thesis. I'll read you a few illustrations of the thesis from the book, but then what I really want to do is invite you to uh, really confirm the thesis uh, by telling some stories. Um, and the, I think the su success of the session really does uh, rely on your depend on your ability to, or your willingness to tell those stories. And we had a wonderful time uh, yesterday with people uh, sharing, shaping, what I call shaping stories, stories about characters or events uh, that really made a, a difference in their life, and particularly, of course, stories about uh, characters. So that's what I'm going to do and uh, would like you to uh, participate uh, in that. To help give you some uh, 
something to think about in the back of your mind while you're listening to my deathless prose. Uh, I got some questions here to think about, and I'm going to ask you these questions through the next hour and 15 minutes, and so you can be prepared for them. The first question is, are you a different person because of a story? Are you a different person, even slightly, because of a story than you would otherwise be? Can you identify any story? And I mean stories from family, stories from school, from popular culture, from history, from literature, but some story that you can uh, identify that uh, made you a slightly different person because you were exposed to that story. Second question, have you, and this I've stolen from Wayne Booth, the uh, critic who used to be at the University of Chicago. Have you ever read or heard a story that made you want to be a better person? Have you ever read or heard a story that made you want to be a better person? Which Booth says is, a, a many academics find, a shocking question and almost a heretical question, but I think is an absolutely natural and excellent question. Number three, who are your favorite characters from stories? And again, it, it can be literature or otherwise. And why? Have you ever wanted to be like a character in a story? And do you think, in, in fact, that you are in any way a part of, uh, some part of you is like a character in a story in a way that maybe you even consciously chose some aspect of some character from a story. Again, it could be a family story, could be a literary story, story in history. Fourth question, do you think a story has ever harmed you in any way? Do you think you've ever been harmed by a story? Uh, temporarily or over a longer period of time? And then last sort of introductory question to be percolating on. Aside from technical excellence, which we will hear, which we rightfully hear a lot about at a conference like this, uh, but in addition to technical excellence, what are the qualities of a good story? What are the characteristics of a good story? What makes a good story good? In addition to strong character, interesting plot, felicitous, felicitous use of language, you know, all kinds of um, things you could say about uh, from a technical point of view, why a story works. What else would you say are characteristics of a good story? All right, so those are questions to think about. Let me present you the thesis in kind of a nutshell, which I'll try to illustrate then. My thesis basically is that stories tell us who we are. Uh, stories uh, answer uh, better than anything else in human experience all the big questions of life. Who am I? Why am I here? What am I supposed to do? Uh, what happens to me when I die? Uh, what is love? You know, I mean, any question, uh, any of the eternal human questions, um, it seems to me have been best answered in story. And that's, for me, the great power of story. Uh, and we can talk a little bit about maybe why that is. I think that by better understanding how stories work in our lives, we can uh, live a better story ourselves uh, and uh, one manifestation of that will be to have meaning in our lives. I think living a healthy story uh, in many ways centers on uh, feeling that your story is meaningful, you know, that there's really a reason why you're here and a reason for getting uh, out of bed every day. So I'm, the book encourages people to actively identify the stories that have shaped them and also to consciously think of their own life as a story and of themselves as characters in their story and to assess their lives to see if uh, there's a plot 
to their life. And we'll talk, we'll define some of these terms uh, in a few minutes. And if they feel a lack of a plot in their story, or if they feel they're not active characters, but really sort of passive spectators, which I think uh, many forces in the uh, contemporary world uh, encourage us to be, uh, that is passive, uh, then we can consciously, as part of our human freedom, and our God-given human freedom, uh, choose to be more active characters in a story that has has meaning. That's, so that's the thesis in a nutshell, which I will ex- uh, expand upon a little bit here. I'd like to illustrate this thesis by telling a story that a very uh, talented storyteller tells about a story in his own life. So this is sort of a story within a story within a story. And I think this is how great stories, this is what happens. Any powerful story that people hear or experience, they want to tell to others. Uh, And that's part of the power of story. This particular uh, storyteller is Scott Mamaday, and some of you know him as a very talented Native American writer. Um, his, the, the first book he wrote that made a, a big splash was uh, Housemaid of Dawn in the late 1960s. But Mamaday is a wonderful writer who uh, combines sort of the best of a understanding of the Western literary tradition and of the novel with a uh, Native American sort of spirituality and sensibility and way of viewing the earth in, in a very attractive kind of way. And Mamaday tells this story about his own beginnings, uh, which is very important to him. And I'll, th- it, I'll try to give you a compressed version of it here for time. Um, Mamaday is a, a Kiowa Indian. He was born in Oklahoma, the state of Oklahoma. The Kiowas had originally settled further north in the uh, northern central plains. And one of the areas that they came to settle was uh, in the area in Montana, or is it Wyoming? Where's Devil's Tower? Wyoming, sorry about that. Montana's on the brain here. Be careful of anything you open in the mail. Um, uh, is, is this incredible, there is, the Kiowas when they moved into this territory found this incredible rock monument. Uh, that soars 1,200 feet into the air that we call Devil's Tower, which uh, Mamaday says, by the way, is a terrible name for the, for this sacred place to call it Devil's Tower. But he, he said it made him a very interesting statement. He said the Kiowa knew that they could not uh, take up normal everyday life until they had explained this thing. And I think that is that's true. There's many things we cannot do in life until we have explained to ourselves uh, some of the central mysteries of life. Uh, and every civilization, every culture, as well as every individual, has to create explanations for the features of life. And a primary feature for them was this huge upcrop- outcropping of, of, of rock. And if you know anything about Devil's Tower, you know it has these amazing vertical lines in it from the way that the, um, the rock cooled. Uh, and if you are a film buff, you know this is where Close Encounters of the Third Kind was was filmed. So they knew this had to be explained, and so of course what did they do? They told a story about it, because that is the way human beings have always, and I would argue continue, to explain reality to themselves. And here is the story that the Kiowa told, Kiowas told about uh, how this thing came to be. There were seven sisters, and their brother were um, playing together. And as sometimes happens, uh, the brother turned into a bear. And he began to chase these sisters. And he chased them very ferociously. I mean, they were in danger because their brother had changed into a bear. 
And they, as they ran from him, there was a great a stump of a tremendous tree that had been cut down or had fallen down. And the stump called to the sisters and said, jump up on, on me. And the sisters jumped up there, and the bear came after them. And as the bear came, the stump rose up into the sky. And the bear brother reached for them with his claws, and he clawed at them, and he produced with these claws these amazing vertical lines in this uh, piece of rock. And then these sisters were translated into what we call the Big Dipper. They were translated into a constellation, which is sort of a nifty ending that mythology seems to use a lot for people. Might be a clue for you writers when you're stuck about what to do with your characters. <laughs> Turn them into a constellation. But Mamaday uh, was born in, you could say, into a society for which this was one of their important stories. And as an infant in Oklahoma, for whatever reason, um, his parents took a vacation up to uh, this area of Wyoming, uh, to Devil's Tower. I wish I knew what the, well, it's actually called Rock Tree. The Kiowa call it Rock Tree, um, which is an interesting metaphorical explanation, this sort of tree-like things uh, rising up out of the plain. And he said uh, his parents with him you know, visited this area. Then they came back to Oklahoma, and the family gathered together to hear about the trip and do the kind of things that families do. And he said an old man in the family looked at young Scott Mamaday and said, this boy needs another name. And he named him, and I don't know how to speak Kiowa, but it's something like Tsao Tali, which means rock tree boy, to commemorate the fact that he had been taken to this sacred place of the Kiowa Indians. And so when Mamaday speaks, and I heard him uh, talk in San Francisco a few years back, he says, Scott Mamaday is only one of my names. He says, my other name, my Kiowa name is Sao Tali, Rock Tree Boy. And he says, uh, I am the boy in the story. I am named after the boy in the story. So he, and he says, anywhere I look, anywhere I am in the world, I can look up into the sky and see my sisters. And he says, I'm never alone in the universe. You know, and he talks very eloquently in some of his writing and when he talks orally about how that tribal story helped shape his understanding of himself and his place in the world. He says it tells him who he is. He's literally been linked by name to another story. He knows he's part of a story, so there's, there's a role for him to play. He is the boy in this story. They share the same na- they share the same name, and therefore those stars are his sisters. And he takes that uh, in a way that maybe a scientific mentality would uh, tend to diminish. He takes it very seriously. So Mamaday says, "This story tells me who I am. I have a place in the universe. The universe is not alien to me, as I think the universe often feels alien to many people who have basically a rationalistic." Uh, approach to understanding the physical world. He knows there's a place for him and that he fits. And I think the same can be true for all of us and and actually is true for most of us uh, if we stop and consciously think about it. Through understanding our role as characters uh, in life-defining stories and stories that shape who we really are, what our values are, how we act in the world, we can live richer and healthier and more meaningful lives. And we can assess our stories. Um, my theory is that the, uh, the famous midlife crisis is really an act of narrative criticism. 
we sit there in the middle of our life, we realize that we probably have already lived more than we have left to live. Uh, we say, what is it we're up to? Is it worth it? Um, does it matter what I've done? Uh, what's my end going to be like? You know, what will, um, what will be said about me at my funeral, even? Which is a very healthy question to ask yourself if you're not, you know, not if you're given to depression, maybe, but um, if you're, you know, I think it's very, you know, it, it can be a sobering, but also a very directive kind of thing to ask yourself, what do I want said about me at my funeral? Because we're all going to have one uh, second coming, uh, holding off as it apparently will for me because I'm right near the edge. Um, what do we want to, to have said about us? You know, what is, what is Ron Brown, would Ron Brown be happy for what's been said about him uh, over the last few weeks um, since he died in the plane crash? When I look at my own life, I, I can see much more clearly now than, um, you know, when I was 30 years old, the, the extent to which I've been shaped by stories. And really, the impetus for this book, not so much to write a book about it, but starting to think about it, came from a, um, a, another book I wrote called Letters to My Children, in which I was trying in individual letters, and I didn't write that as a book. I wrote it literally as letters that later became a book. And I never mailed the letters either. Uh, but I sort of thought, well, you don't, you're not always going to be around to, uh, you, there's no guarantee that you're going to even live to see your kids turn into adults. And so I started writing these letters. And after I had written many of them, what I realized I was doing was telling them stories. Uh, and m these stories revolved around values that I was trying to communicate to them. And it wasn't a conscious strategy on my part when I was writing the letter, uh, but I saw afterwards. And so I started thinking about the degree to which stories uh, are not just sort of interesting things that you can remember and are entertaining, but they really uh, determine uh, how you act in the world and what you think about the world and what you think about yourself in very in the most fundamental kinds of ways. And so that was sort of impetus to think about the nature of story and how it works in our lives. So I'm going to read you a um, short selection from a part of the book in which I really only try to identify the stories that may have formed one part of me. Because I, I realized as I said, I think, well, now I've got to illustrate this, you know, what stories have shaped you, that they're endless. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't uh, begin to exhaust them in a particular book. But I thought about, well, there's, what, what, what am I like as a person? What are my values or characteristics? Uh, can I identify one thing and see what stories might have shaped that? And so this is... Uh, a passage that I hopefully illustrates some of what I've been talking about. Uh, when I reflect on the stories that contribute to whatever I am today, I immediately realize there are too many to enumerate, even to myself. Still, it might be possible to isolate a few to illustrate the process. One of my defining qualities I now see is a penchant for viewing the world through moral criteria. I have an instinctive fondness for the categories of good and evil, right and wrong, that verges at times on the moralistic. I never consciously decided to see the world this way, though I have consciously decided as an adult not to abandon it. I believe I developed this habit of perception because a steady stream of stories, secular and sacred, presented reality to me in these terms. This is one reason why when you get the very common uh, sort of feeling expressed in the late 20th century that um, you know, there's no such thing as 
good and evil. Those are just people's opinions about what they like or don't like. That what's left of the hair on my head kind of raises up. Because I just have this visceral belief that there is such a thing as good and there is such a thing as evil and that it's absolute foolishness to uh, smear that distinction or to pretend that it's totally produced by a culture or by you know individual experiences that has no kind of grounding in how things are. So I, you know, I just literally sat at my uh, word processor and said, well, what are some of the, why am I like that? And I started to think about the things in my life and the stories in my life that might have contributed to that. A powerful common theme in stories from my childhood and after centered on good and evil, punishment and reward, and the consequences of choices, especially the bad consequences of bad choices, which were much easier to visualize and seemed more certain to a child than happy ones. Now, if you grew up fundamentalist, you know what I'm talking about. This is a dangerous world, and everything is out to get you, especially Satan. So as a little kid, I was much... Uh, disaster was and, and potential disaster was much easier to believe than anything else. An early source was fairy tales, sometimes as filtered through Disney. Fairy tales offered a simplified and yet accurate view of the world where it mattered who you ran around with and what you did. Because Pinocchio listened to the wrong people, he ended up with donkey ears and was saved only through conscience and courage. Because two of the three pigs preferred to play before they worked, they ended up as lunch meat for the big bad wolf. I moved easily between Pinocchio in the belly of Monstro and Jonah in the belly of the whale. Some from my fundamentalist past would lament the confusion between what they take as mere imagination versus hardcore historical reality. I see both as embodying similar truths and therefore as allies. Pinocchio didn't obey and paid the price. Jonah was assigned a bad territory to work, Nineveh, and he chose to ignore the assignment. Bad choice. God, it appears, gives commands, not suggestions. One reason among many why he is out of fashion. Uh, and I, I may have been thinking of my grandmother when I talked about this sort of fundamentalist distrust of the imagination um, and of something like fairy tales. I mean, I, you still, I still run into people who say, why would you want children to read fairy tales? You know, those are, those are at the best they'll say those are made up if they don't say, quite say they're lies. Or if they read Bible stories, those are true. Uh, and I remember my grandmother when I must have been about four years old, and I, we, uh, I was getting out of the back seat of this car, and she was getting out of the front seat. It's very clear in my memory her turning on me, and I don't know what I've been saying in the back seat up to this point, but she looked at me fiercely and she says, "Don't you story to me," you know. And it was very interesting later, as I thought back on that, she equated story with lie. You know, to story, and and there is a kind of uh, metaphorical aptness about that. You know, to sort of spin a yarn. We talk about that kind of thing, but it also, I thought, betrayed. I, I think now, betrays a kind of impoverished view, a very impoverished view, really, of of story and the imagination and its ability to discover and reveal to us truth. It was clear to me as a child that donkey ears and whale bellies were just around the corner, depending on my choices. I still see the dim light in the empty hallway of my second grade Texas school. I had been sent to run an errand, and as I, and as I passed the principal's office, I glanced cautiously in the open door, as one might when passing the cave mouth of a local troll. 
There, through the second open door, I saw a boy bent over holding his ankles and the principal swinging a long, broad paddle. The sound of that paddle was the voice of God to me, saying, You, Danny Taylor, living in the Baptist preacher's parsonage, I know you, and I know what you think about. There's a paddle waiting here with your name on it. Actually, it wasn't so much the voice of God as the combined voice of my Sunday school teacher, the school principal, and various other adults in my life, but I wasn't worrying about fine distinctions. If the story of Jonah was reinforced by Disney and school paddlings, it also found its echo in terrifying little Christmas songs. I took very seriously the one that goes, you better watch out, you better not cry, you better not shout, I'm telling you why Santa Claus is coming to town. That was bad enough. But what was far worse, he knows. He knows when you've been sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. There it was, our greatest desire and worst fear to be known. Somebody was watching. Good news. Somebody was watching. Bad news. Good news or bad, it mattered what you did, maybe even what you thought. Both had consequences. One particularly onerous consequence was the effect of my behavior on the Dodgers. I was convinced as a 10-year-old that there was a direct connection between my moral life and the place of the Dodgers in the standings. I took this very seriously. I mean, you talk about crises of faith and conduct. Boy, I just felt that, you know, and of course I, I worshiped the Dodgers, so this was no small thing. Cheat on a spelling test and Duke Snyder will strike out with the bases loaded. Memorize the Bible verse for Sunday school and he lines it into right field for the winning hit. The inescapable consequences of choices was a steady drumbeat at home, at church, at school, and on the ball field. You do this, you get that. What goes up must come down. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. You reap what you sow. Ding is followed by dong. My life was one unending lesson in cause and effect. Some of these lessons were silly in their application. Do you want to be caught in a movie theater when Jesus comes back? But not in their underlying principle. It matters what you fill your mind with. Their aim was to make me a better person. It's not too much to say that their aim was to instruct me in being human. As I got older, the stories continued unabated. In sixth grade, they were colored baby blue. I remember clearly a seemingly endless series of bite-sized biographies of famous Americans all bound in baby blue covers. I read them for extra credit, 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 in sixth grade. Nathan Hale, points, regrets having only one life to give for his country. John Paul Jones, points, defiantly declares to his more powerful enemies, don't tread on me. Abraham Lincoln, more points, was so determined to learn despite his poverty that he did arithmetic on the back of a shovel with a piece of coal. I read for the points, but I was formed by the stories. And all those stories were essentially one story. Work hard, have courage, sacrifice for others, do good. In some, live by and for high values. Hopelessly oversimplified, touchingly naive, absolutely essential. The lack of such naivete today is killing us. Um, well, I'll skip a couple paragraphs here. Basically, I talk about stories that come from church, you know, the same kind of message. It comes from family, it came from school, it also uh, came from church. Talk about uh, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, was joined by the Jesus who commanded leaving father and mother. Um, could that be necessary? The ubiquitous stories of missionaries took an uncomfortably personal bent. I was almost sure I was going to have to be one. Uh, 
My reasoning went something like this. I could either do what I wanted to do, is grow up and play for the Dodgers, or do what God wanted me to do with my life, something that required wearing a suit. And I sort of ended up right in between. I don't fully wear a suit, but I don't quite play for the Dodgers either. One of the, last, one of the things I least wanted to do was be a missionary. That, therefore, was the thing God obviously would require of me to stay out of hell. The place I associated most clearly with missionaries was Africa. My image of Africa was formed less by missionary slides than by stories from popular culture. Tarzan, Jungle Jim, Sheena, Queen of the Jungle. If God makes me a missionary, I thought, I will end up in Africa. And if I end up in Africa, I will eventually end up flat on my back with a spear point at my throat. And this huge, frightening African holding the spear will ask me a question. Do you believe in Jesus? This was a scenario, a story I played out in my head many times. This fateful, imagined fateful moment, spear at my throat, was Nathan Hale, Horatio at the bridge, and the Apostle Stephen all rolled into one. If I hadn't been Baptist, I might have thought of Joan of Arc or some other saint as well. At that moment, I would be forced to make a choice that would determine my ultimate fate. I would say, yes, I believe in Jesus, and would be immediately thrust through the throat, ascending then to heaven on the wings of an angel, shouting, glory to St. Dan in the highest. Or, and what a deadly or, I would say, Jesus? don't believe I've heard that name. And then, of course, I would be spared for the moment. I would live, but I would live knowing I had failed the test, the big choice, and my life would be haunted and my afterlife too grim to contemplate. As with worrying about Jesus finding you at the movies, this story I created from a patchwork of received stories was childish in its details, but not in its underlying conception of life. It does matter what I or anyone decides about ultimate things, including God. It does matter whether we live by our values when doing so does not seem in our best immediate interest. At such crucial points in bedrooms, boardrooms, classrooms, and concentration camps, more than one person has been guided by a story a story that told them what they, that what they decided mattered. All right, so that's uh, an illustration of just some of the stories, you know, just referred to really very much in passing, that form just one part of what perhaps is my character today. I think that stories spring from a very fundamental need and desire we have for meaning in life. Um, right after your lungs have enough oxygen and your stomach has enough food, the thing you next need most in life is meaning. Um, you, you need it more than many of the other things that we think we need and, and pursue. And I think we tell stories because of this, because stories make connections between things. And meaning depends on connections between things, that this is important because it is connected to that and that the things that happen to us in our life are not simply random or arbitrary or you know, just ephemeral things that pass away, but there is significance to them. And so we look to stories to help us find literally a plot to our own lives um, because I think story, as I've said, is the single best way people have for accounting um, for their experience. I, uh, you know, I think sometimes people think that uh, just writers at conferences like this are the people who tell stories, or maybe a grandfather or something like that. But I think we are all, by nature, storytellers, and we do it all the time. I would, I would love to have 25 cents for every story that all of you have told just today. 
I think as soon as, you know, up to this time, you've probably been sitting around telling s stories or versions of stories, and you'll continue for the rest uh, of your waking hours, and then you'll go to sleep and you'll dream stories. Uh, we cannot escape. They're everywhere we are. Every time you ask somebody, what have you been up to? How's it been going? Uh, how are the kids? Or in the case of some of you, how are the parents? Um, you know, what's, what's new? Those are all story prompts. Those are all invitations to tell me a story. And we really, we literally want a story. What we don't want is the word fine, okay. I mean, uh, try that out on your spouse, particularly if you're a male. You could come into the house, you know, how was your day or whatever. If one word answers will not do, no matter how accurate they might be. That other person is asking you for a story. And that's because they want to make some kind of connection with you. And story is how we make connections with each other. I want to read a passage here. This, this kind of way of talking has been in the air for quite a while, really, among theologians and philosophers and um, psychologists. I want to read from a passage from Alistair McIntyre, who some of you know is a very prominent contemporary philosopher and ethicist, who's been very influential in helping people start to think, not just in rationalistic terms, but in story terms, even about things like truth. McIntyre says the following, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part, that is, part of. You can't literally answer that question, what am I to do in life, unless you know uh, what the stories are that you've bought into either consciously or unconsciously. He says, It is through hearing stories about wicked stepmothers, lost children, good but misguided kings, and eldest sons who waste their inheritance on riotous living and go into exile to live with the swine, that children learn or mislearn what a child and what a parent is, what the cast of characters may be in the drama into which they have been born, and what the ways of the world are. Deprive children of stories and you leave them, this is very interesting, Deprive children of stories and you leave them unscripted, anxious stutterers in their actions as in their words. I think that's a wonderful observation. A, a, a person, a young person, literally does not know their lines. They have no script if they're not part of a story or if it's a confused or broken story. Uh, I have a seven-year-old daughter, believe it or not. It's not my granddaughter, it's a daughter the caboose of the family, who's in a play right now at uh, Bethel College. She's got six lines, she knows them, she's proud, she's gonna knock them dead. Um, she knows what to say at the right time. What every child also needs is to know what to say at the right time and what to do at the right time in their real lives. And if young people often seem directionless or aimless or passive or whatever else, it's often because they, they have been deprived of good stories. They're not rooted in a story in which they feel that they are a character who knows more or less what to do, not in a robotic way or a mechanical way, but who has a sense of the story and of the plot of which they are a part. And of course, it's also equally true of older people. It's not just young people. Uh, anyone who is basically confused about their lives may well be uh, in need of rethinking what is the, the story of which they are a part and which is helping to define them. Let me offer you a, a very brief definition 
uh, not nothing poetic, but the kind of thing that you need to def use to defend yourself against people. Who say, well, what do you mean by these terms? And there are always people like that lurking around. So here's my brief definition, stripped strip down definition of a story. A story is the telling of the significant action of characters over time. The telling of the significant action of characters over time. And what I want to do is uh, explore a little bit of those terms, because I think each of them, although they're fairly mundane in themselves, each of them is significant and uh, helpful to understanding what story is. <clears throat> um, the notion of telling uh, starts to get at the community aspect of story. Uh, telling and story implies a minimum of two people, a teller and a listener. So stories exist in communities, even if it's just a very small community of two people. Uh, and that's a very important uh, human fact and a human need uh, that exists in communities. When I tell a story uh, to you, we are during that time a community. And if the community is working well, my ex, my, the ethical thing really for me to do is to ask you your story afterwards. A story is not interested in monologues, uh, even though we have monologues within story. Healthy stories are at least dialogues among, and they're, they're multi-voiced. And so uh, telling is a very important part of that definition. It grows out of our um, innate nature as social creatures. Uh, James Q. Wilson, who some of you know is an uh, important criminologist, sociologist, uh, social scientist at least, has written an interesting book called The Moral Sense, in which he argues, contrary to the orthodoxy of our time, that there really is an innate moral sense in human beings, which most social scientists deny outright. Uh, morality, the, the orthodox view is that morality is only created by cultures, and, um, and which is sort of antithetical to a Christian understanding of all of us being made in the image of God, but it's the, it's the reigning view. James Q. Wilson said that's really not true, and he talks about, uh, he says the key to human morality uh, is in our innate sociability. Even infants start very early to show that they care about what happens with other infants. You get you know, two kids and one of them starts crying and it bothers the other kid. And not just on a selfish level, and he talks about this in a very persuasive kind of way. Kids start to share, they start to, they'll pat each other, they start to take care of each other. And he says, in this, out of this innate sociability uh, grows what we call the moral sense in human beings. And I think telling is part of that. Um, Robert Frost has a poem that he chose to be the very first poem in his uh, collection of poems. It's called The Pasture. He says, I'm going out to clean the pasture spring. I'll only stop to rake the leaves away and wait to watch the water clear, I may. I shan't be gone long, you come too. I'm going out to fetch the little calf that's standing by the mother. It's so young it totters when she licks it with her tongue. I shan't be gone long you come too. And that refrain in that very short poem, you come too, is I think the essential invitation of story. You know, it's inclusive, story is inclusive. Let me tell you my story, you know. And we need to be ethical listeners. We need to pay attention to people's stories, uh, listen compassionately. And then the ethical response, as I said, is then to let the listener tell the story. 
So telling, it seems to me, uh, is a very important part of story and it is an invitation to relationship, an invitation to community. Second part of the definition says story needs to have a significant action. It's based, it's the telling of significant action by characters, of characters over time. And I think that's getting us to this, uh, to the notion of plot. Um, and, and it's also connected to this idea of meaning that I said is uh, so important. We only really care in the long run about uh, stories in which something happens that strikes us as significant, that it mattered that it happened. Uh, we're not particularly interested in the film on a bank security camera, right? I mean, you, they're producing eight hour, an eight-hour epic every day. And you can sit there and it's film. You can watch people come in, fill out their little form, stand in line, leave, and you can see it at fast motion. The reason we're not interested is because there's no real significant connection between all these people who come in the bank, except they're all putting in or taking out money. And that doesn't strike us as particularly significant. So, that, so just having events or having things happen or having characters or people do things does not make a story. Um, in fact, the famous, one of the most famous definitions of plot or story comes from E.M. Forster, the British novelist, who says, if you have the king died, then the queen died, you don't have a story. You just have two events. He says, you say the king died, then the queen died of grief, and you've got a story. You've got motivation. You've got a causal link. You've got something worth exploring. And what we want in our own lives is that sort of significant link between events and not just random events. The key to that significance grows out, I think, of the third element of the definition, and that is character. The telling of the significant action of characters over time. And character, it seems to me, is the absolute key, of course, to story and to our interest in story. Long after we have forgotten plot, symbolism, even theme, we remember characters. Um, for a number of years I taught Moby Dick when I first started teaching at Bethel College. Um, then they hired somebody who knew something about American literature, and so I moved over to things that I knew more about. I was just sort of covering that. So I haven't taught Moby Dick in many years, and I remember spending a lot of time in class on things like symbolism and intricate kind of things. Isn't this cool? Look how this, you know, three days they're chasing the whale here, and that's, you know, what three is. That's obviously symbolic. It always is. Uh, and this and that. And themes. I remember just going on about all these themes. You know, I can't remember any of those anymore. I can't remember quite what the themes are. Uh, I can't remember the symbolism in any great detail, but boy, do I remember Ahab. The guy still scares me. You know, and Melville wrote that in a way to introduce him, and he kind of builds suspense because he has characters talking about Ahab in a kind of a fearsome way before we ever see Ahab in the story, and Ahab sticks in my head. And Ishmael, this wonderful narrator, who at the very opening of the novel says, "Well, I've got two choices: I can either uh, shoot myself in the head, or I can go to sea again." That's a wonder, and it's said much better than that, but it's a wonderfully kind of comic tragic. Uh, opening to the novel that nobody ever mentions, but I think it's wonderful. And Queequeg, this this uh, this Indian harpooner covered with uh, with uh, tattoos, who Ishmael ends up sharing a bed with his very first night in a very funny scene. 
uh, all of these characters, and in this name any, you know, start naming stories, and what you're first going to remember is characters, and maybe that's all you're going to remember. So characters, of course, is, is very important. Well, what is character, and what, is, what are characters? Uh, character, as we talk about it in moral terms, is the intersection of life and values. It's life, it's values actually lived out in life. It is not values that are intellectually assented to or believed. And I think this is a great failing in the evangelical church, maybe anywhere in the church, probably in all of humanity for that matter. We think that what's important is what we believe. And so we feel like if somebody says, well, do you believe in Jesus and do you believe he raised from the dead and he's saving you, as long as you can say yes, then you're sort of covered, you know, you've taken care of things. I don't think that's either biblical nor is it uh, true to how story works. What's important is what you do with those beliefs, the way those beliefs show themselves in your acts and the way you relate to people and the way you act in the world. So really, nobody should ask you whether you're a Christian. They should ask your neighbors whether you're a Christian, right? And your neighbors, the neighbors will tell, you know, give a much more accurate uh, assessment of whether you're a Christian or not than you will yourself. Now, if any of you have any ideas about doing that with my neighbors, I've just got one or two I'd rather you not ask. <laughs> but character is the essence of story in literature and in history and in our own lives. What are we interested in about characters and stories? We're basically, interestingly enough, interested in, in people in trouble. Stories are almost always centered on people in trouble. And we want to know, see what choices they're going to make. They're in tough spots. What are they going to do? Or they're in hilarious situations or whatever. And it doesn't have to be real dramatic. It can be a very quiet kind of story. But if characters aren't making choices, being forced to make choices, it's likely to be a very dull story. So we are drawn to finite people in difficult situations, making difficult choices, largely, I think, because we often feel that we're in that situation ourselves in life. And we're looking for clues, right? We're looking for hints. Um, not directly. We don't say, oh, let's see what, uh, what did Ishmael do when Ahab was giving him a bad time. But we're sort of, we're always collecting stories from each other, from literature, from history, uh, and making it part of our own stockpile. And we, you know, I, I argue in the book that, we, that you can literally think with a story. Uh, you can bring it to bear. And a lot of wisdom that you can bring into difficult situations is brought in directly in story form. Uh, because characters have choices and are making choices, story is inherently concerned with morality. And I think uh, nothing strikes me as more foolish and just obviously wrong than a very common assertion that literature has nothing to do with morality and that we should keep those things separate. I mean, you just cannot keep those things separate. Any place you have human beings making choices, you have morality because you have a choice implies a value. Why this instead of that? Uh, what is the ought that underlies that choice? Um, and every value implies uh, a judgment of right and wrong, or true and false, or uh, ought and should. So, of course, if people are making choices, morality is involved. Of course, morality is important in politics. And, and I mean, you just don't have politics without morality. Uh, how could you? How can you choose what you fund, where you spend your money, what you, you know, how you vote? on an issue without your values uh, being engaged. And so I think that's one of the things that story teaches us 
that I think is very helpful for us to know in the late 20th century. There's so much relativism, so much suggestion that, well, everybody makes their own decisions, makes their own values, and so who am I to say that there's a pressure to make us very passive uh, and spectators. And being a spectator is really the opposite of being a character, or almost the opposite. Uh, certainly there's a time for observation and stuff, but a person who's frozen as a spectator uh, of life or of other people is really uh, engaged in a sort of a dehumanizing activity. Um, I mean, it's really it's the essence of, of voyeurism and uh, pornography and all kinds of things where you turn, instead of having a, a you know what Buber called an I-thou relationship to other people, you turn them into its. They're objects, they're things to be observed. And story, healthy stories will not allow us to be merely spectators. The last element in the definition is over time, the telling the significant action of characters over time. And that's important because uh, time makes change possible. Stories cannot happen in an instant. Um, they take chronological time to unfold, both the stories we read and the stories we live in our own life. And because they take place over time, and because we are characters making choices, we can choose for our story to be different than it is. And again, there's much in modern thought that tells us that we, are, that we don't have free choice, that we're determined by our genetics, by our gender, by our class, by our race, by any number of things. Say, well, you know, it's all been determined for you and you're just a victim or you're just you know a, a, a victimizer and it's all where you came from it is where you came from but uh, we still have free will and we're still characters and so because stories unfold over time choices can be made by characters and we can change our own story and I think that's one of the great reasons for hope in the world if really change is impossible we're in a pretty desperate situation at the very least, we're in a boring situation. Um, but because we are really characters in, story, in our own story, we can change and things can be different than they are. Okay, I'm going to read a short passage, not as long as the last one, and then I'm going to ask you to uh, identify any stories in your life that you think may have changed you. This is an attempt to, um, in a very brief story, to uh, summarize this definition or illustrated at least. Um, a friend of mine whom I value very much once confessed to a group of us that he suffered in his life from what Winston Churchill called the shaggy black dog of depression. Perhaps I should have guessed this, having admired his many drawings and paintings of dead birds in various stages of decay, some draped casually from his bald head in self-portraits. I guess that should have been a clue to me, shouldn't it? <laughs> wonderful drawings and paintings of himself, uh, some of just birds, but others of himself standing there staring out from the painting with a dead bird on top of his head, sort of. But a wonderfully gentle man. Uh, anyway, perhaps I should have seen depression declaring itself in his gently sad eyes or in his slightly too deep sighs, but I didn't. And then he told us an important reason while he, why he was still alive. He said that a few years back, his daughter had moved back home, pregnant, broke, marriage collapsed. It was a dark time for him. Death seemed attractive. Hope and faith seemed far away. Reasons for going on came reluctantly and without conviction. Then life offered him one more reason in the form of a grandson. 
Five minutes after the birth, my friend held him in his hands, whispering, Grandpa loves Nick. Grandpa loves Nick. He told us this story with his voice cracking and our own eyes filled with tears. Nick was sent into the world to keep me alive, he said. Whenever I felt despair too heavily in the months to come, or thoughts of death filled my mind, I picked up my grandson and whispered over and over, Grandpa loves Nick. Grandpa loves Nick. Grandpa loves Nick. You may wonder whether Grandpa Loves Nick qualifies as a story. I believe it does. These words are the tip of an iceberg. They're breaking into breath of years of pain and perseverance. They are a brief eruption into language of a story that had been more often articulated with his artist's hand. But I will claim more. These three words, Grandpa Loves Nick, are by themselves a story, compressed, unadorned, unelaborated, but a story vibrating with the power of a splitting nucleus. They have everything required, a speaker, a listener, an action, a message, and a heart on fire. Could Nick have had a better welcome into the world? Do you doubt that this story formed him over the months and forms him still? Don't you wish such stories for every newborn baby, for every child, for yourself? This story shaped teller and hearer alike, as all our stories do. Okay, so my question to you is, can you identify, and are you willing to testify to uh, any stories from your life um, that, that you think made you a different person than you would have been without that story? Anybody willing to start us off? I can wait as long as you can. You have to remember I'm a teacher. I'm hardened to silence. <laughs> yes. Right. Sure. I think one of the uh, great sort of byproducts of uh, certain stories for me, and uh, I teach a course called Literature of the Oppressed, and teach everything from Holocaust literature up to Native American and feminist and African-American literature, uh, and the effect for me every time of teaching those stories is to lower my own whining threshold, or raise it, I guess you should say. I just, the things that I would sort of instinctively begin to whine about seem so petty and surmountable compared to the stories that you hear from other people. And it's not a way of sort of silencing our own, you know, natural desire to uh, express our pain, but giving us a kind of a, a, a scale against which to measure it that... Uh, I think makes me at least more accepting of this, of the details of the story I'm living. Yes. On the further back, and then we'll go to you second, next. <laughs> High tech. <laughs> yeah, that seems to be a sort of uh, uh, another basic human need to feel that you're significant. And the kids love stories in which they are the characters. My kids... First off, I, mean, I read tons of stories to my kids, but they really liked it when I told a, made up a story, and of course they were the heroes. And uh, as it turns out, my kids were at that age when the Star Wars movies first came out. So we had lots of movies of, uh, I mean, lots of stories from me and of, uh, of these uh, Landwalkers and, and Darth Vader, and they were Jedi Knights, and it just worked out great. Um, and I think it's important that we uh, focus on the stories from our past that uh, are positive 
in the way that, that you're talking about there, because we can always we can all create a sort of canon of of terrible stories, um, but we and those shouldn't those have to be told too. But we should balance them with the best stories that we can remember. Somebody after this session yesterday told me she works with. Um, you know, uh, juvenile offenders, uh, and tries to teach them, and they have horrific stories. Uh, and she tries to get them to use story in a positive way. And and one uh, one young boy talked about the time that his mother saved his and his sister's life uh, and swooped them out of a burning room and and took them. And he he uh, he loved telling that story. And how and it, for him, it symbolized how much his mother loved him and would do for him. As a social worker, she knew that that had happened. Uh, that that fire had been set by the mother's boyfriend on purpose, uh, and it was a terrible family situation. And in many ways, you could create a situation there where the mother was very derelict. And yet, what the boy remembered was that his mother saved him. And I don't think that's a false interpretation of what happened at all. She did save him, and she did love him, and she, you know, that was her best self doing that thing. And that was very appropriate for that kid to remember to remember that. You were going to share a story with us. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, I'd want to emphasize that I we've got to tell our whole story and that includes the bad part uh, as well and not sugarcoat it. Uh on the other hand, as you say, even bad stories can can force choices that can be turned into good things. Of course, this is part of the optimism of Christianity. That uh, you know that for all the ugliness in the world, that God is is uh, is uh, redeeming His creation. I mean, that's a great act of faith, really. I mean, that's Christianity is an incredibly optimistic religion. For all this talk about sin and stuff that's that's so close to our lips too, the, the idea that something takes care of all of this and rights, you know, and justice is done in the end is amazingly optimistic. And and uh, I have stories, one of which I may read here if we have time. Um, about people who who are in circumstances that just seem nothing. There's no uh, silver lining to this, and yet they have a, a attitude toward life that uh, redeems even dark stories. Um, let me just make a few assertions based on this this thesis that, and this definition that I've offered, and I won't elaborate these at any length, but I think they're they're important. Uh, one is that character is much more important than your personality. Uh, and this is something I think we've really lost, and I explored at some length in the book. Um, we really have become obsessed with the notion of personality in the 20th century, largely at the behest of the social sciences and obviously particularly psychology. And there's nothing wrong with the notion of personality, and there's nothing wrong with psychology's exploration of it. But what, it, what is the problem is that it has, it has pushed the notion of character right off the stage. Uh, and we look only to the social sciences to tell us what it means to be a human being. And we have become obsessed with a sort of inward uh, manipulation of our psyches and probing it, et cetera, that becomes very narcissistic uh, and ultimately uh, sort of uh, anti-community, uh, turns us so much inward, not inward in order to go outward, but just sort of inward and staying inward, that I think uh, a, a renewed understanding of story and of character and ourselves as character can uh, be very important in helping to at least balance that out. Um, Bruno Bettelheim makes a very important point, I think, in, in uh, 
a book he does about fairy tale, writes about fairy tales and the importance of fairy tales for children. And it's related to this notion of, of this centrality of character. He says that um, stories and fairy tales in particular play an important role in the moral development of children. He said uh, one of the things, of course, they do is they show good and evil. Uh, and it's real good and it's real evil. And, uh, you know, maybe it's oversimplified, but it's, it's, uh, it makes that necessary distinction that there are two, two different things in the world, sometimes mixed together, but in fairy tales more often quite clearly separated. And he says it's important for a child to see this, and it's also important to see in the fairy tale that characters make choices vis-a-vis -vis good and evil. And that there are consequences to their choices, very clear kinds of consequences. And of course, many of these fairy tales and stories were almost designed or grew out of the need to instruct, and so they're often very didactic. But he makes a key observation. He says, the child, in listening to the fairy tale, does not say, do I want to be good? The child says, who do I want to be like in this story? And I think that's true for most of us. We don't abstractly think, all right, what's the qualities of a good person? I've got to have all those qualities. Or at least it's not, I don't think it's particularly productive uh, to do that, maybe occasionally. What we do, uh, just as often unconsciously as consciously, is we see people around us who we want to be like, who we want to emulate. Uh, now, the problem in our culture, I think, is that often we want to emulate people for the wrong reasons and we want the wrong part of what they are. But throughout, of course, education and the history of moral education uh, has been based on storytelling and finding heroes and mentors and models and exempla to follow after. And I think, um, you know, Bettelheim, like uh, McIntyre in that earlier quote, is, is telling us that children need to see people that they can try to live a life like that in one way or another. And I think it's true for us as well. We do well to consciously identify and choose among the characters in the stories that surround us and really try to appropriate uh, part of what they are to what we are. And I have my own sort of pantheon of heroes. I'm sure there are some, there are many people who, if I spent more time, I would think of many more people. Uh, but people like, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. or Alexander Solzhenitsyn or Pascal or Harriet Tubman or all these kinds of people, these, these people are really, uh, for me, models. Uh, they have aspects of their life which I would like to be part of my life. Now, it does not depend on me thinking these people are perfect in any, by any means. I mean, uh, contemporary history and, and journalism uh, loves to show us the clay feet and all our idols. And, and that's, a, that can, that's a, maybe a necessary corrective. The mistake is to say, because this person was imperfect, therefore we have nothing to learn from their life. Uh, and, it, and that results in a kind of cynicism about life, which is very prevalent. Uh, and I think it's, it's uh, story argues against that. Because even the heroes in stories, uh, especially contemporary modern stories in the last two or three hundred years, are always very flawed. They have that. And yet there's something about them that uh, contributes to them living uh, a successful life in the way that we could, could emulate. Let me read... Um, Another passage about a, the, a person who I just mentioned is living in circumstances that you wouldn't think had anything to offer, uh, but who had an image of the plot of her life that made all the difference. And then I'm going to ask you to identify some characters, perhaps, from your own life. 
I've written elsewhere of a dying woman named Phyllis. She was the divorced wife of, a fa- of my father's friend from college days. That is when my father was in college. In her 50s and dying of cancer, she seemed to have little to show for her life. Her marriage had dissolved. She had traveled paths her well-known preacher father would never have approved. Her beloved daughter had been killed in a car wreck a few years before, and she was broke. As college students, my wife-to-be and I visited her in her last days. The room was bare and dingy. The walls painted a dirty-looking tan. She sat in the reclining chair in which she slept because it was too painful for her to lie down. A curly wig covered her baldness. Nothing in the situation hinted at the greatness of spirit that filled the woman. She talked to us about life in the way that only those with little of it left can do. All the trivial urgencies of daily living had seeped away. Nothing petty was worth her attention, or for those moments, ours. She talked, among other things, about her pain, but in a way I had never heard anyone talk. She addressed it as her companion, as her escort to another world. She said God sometimes came to her in the night, a warm light that filled her body and assured her that all shall be well. Our culture's great aversion to pain and suffering of any kind was, she thought, a bad sign. Pain was a part of so many good things, giving birth, writing a poem, asking forgiveness, even saying, I love you. Complete freedom from pain meant separation from life. After being with Phyllis, I could never think of pain, my own or the world's, in quite the same way. She gave me a fresh way of seeing something that was very old and familiar. She did not erase the reality of suffering, but she offered me new ways of thinking about it. And therefore, I have evaluated and acted in the world slightly differently in the many years since. I have been, in short, a different character and thereby lived a slightly different story because of this brief encounter with a dying woman whose life had all the external marks of failure. Uh, any stories from you about characters? I'm interested, I mean, I, I'm interested in any story, but is, has anybody ever been influenced by a character in literature? What's the character? Okay. Anyone else? Okay. Excellent. Robin Hood? I really would like to take the time to find out how all this... <laughs> But we don't have time for everyone, yeah. Pardon? Ethan Holly, from what story? Okay. Of human bondage, all right. Yeah. I... Yeah, great. I think it's true, and, um, you know, uh, as I said, Booth's version of that story is of that question is, has any story made you want to be better? He said the, he says the only people who ever object to the question are academics. You know, people who really read and treasure and value stories all can name characters. And it's only people who've sort of been trained to be skeptical about the moral impact of, of art uh, who object on, on philosophical grounds of one way or another. Um, Well, I'm going to skip all the rest of the stuff because of time. I guess I would just close by saying um, I think stories have the power to, e- to heal what ails us. Uh, and I, in, I'm ambivalent about this as a self-help book because I don't, it isn't a self-help book. At least it wasn't in my mind. On the other hand, I think it sort of is a self-help book. The difference, um, the difference for me is that so many, so many self-help 
books turn you inward and leave you turned inward. And I think if we think about story, story definitely probes uh, very deeply into what we are, as deep as anything can, but then it also turns us back out to community. And what we need, I think, often as individuals, and I certainly think we need this as, as a society, are healthy stories uh, in which, which give us a, a sense of connectedness between things, in which we can be characters doing purposeful things. And the great tragedy of, one of the great tragedies of our society is that our common storyteller is television. And that's the quality of story that we get and that we all share together. And unless we improve on the quality of stories, we're, we're in trouble as a culture. And I think we can improve if we uh, purpose to. So thank you very much for your attention. Rewrite Radio is a production of the Kelvin Center for Faith and Writing, located on the campus of Kelvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. You can find more information about the center, our initiatives, and our signature event, the Festival of Faith and Writing, online at ccfw.kelvin.edu and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at ccfwgr. You can also subscribe to our Rewrite Radio on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Thanks so much for listening, and stay tuned for more from our archives. Thank you.